the last few weeks, we took a step back from the Gospel of Luke. But now, I, I, it was, I just felt the Lord put it on my heart. It's time to start going back through it. And as I was going through the text, I was just excited for what we're going to be studying this morning. Because we're going to learn about the rich young ruler. And I have a, a title for my study this morning. And we do have, I do have my points this morning, too. The title for my study this morning is, Jesus is Everything You Need. And it's taken out of Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. So I want to read just that portion of Scripture, and then we'll divide the text. In verse 18 of chapter 18 of Luke's Gospel, we read, it says, Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he had become very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. So this is a very cool account because this is a popular one in the Christian theology that we've heard before, the rich young ruler. And as I was Looking at, at, at this text this morning, I was trying to getting everything in context. The, the main thing that, that was hitting me with this young man's life, there was something missing in this man's life. And he didn't even realize it. He was religious and he knew of God, but he didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And I, I just kind of, here's a, a spoiler of the study today. It's in my title. The thing he's missing is Jesus. And that's why I, I, I pulled that, that title right from one of my points, is Jesus is everything you need. And this is the message for this young man here. This is the message for us. As I was thinking of an illustration to kind of start off my study this morning, I think I gave this illustration a couple weeks ago, but I wanted to remind us, what would you do if I offered you $10 today and said, here, I will give you, no, let's, you know what, let's lessen the price. Let's say, I will give you a dollar today. I'll give you a dollar. 
free of charge today. Or if you wait a week, in seven days, I'll give you a billion dollars. And let's say in this illustration I'm giving you, I had the money to back that, right? And you believed it. You believed like, yeah, that billion dollars would come in seven days. What would you do? Would you rather take the moment of that dollar so you could go get a, a pack of gum? Or would you willingly wait those seven days for a billion dollars? It's pretty easy, right? You would say, I'll, I'll wait. I'll be patient. You want to know why? Because you believe it's coming. And you're like, man, the value of that is way more to me than having to, to, to just take that dollar now. I'll wait. I'll be patient. Now, so many times in our life, we take the dollar value for what we want right now, today, because we're not patient with what God has for us. We're not patient with the etern eternal glory and the eternal riches that we find in Christ that are coming in the next life to come. And we're so consumed with this life, which is just an itty-bitty living space, that everything that we do in this life, we make it so important. Yet what really matters is what we're doing for eternity, what we're doing for the Lord. And so we're robbing ourselves when we're trading in the things of eternity for the things that are not going to last. When we, when we trade that in, we're, we're robbing ourselves. We're robbing God. And this is a part of the problem that I see with this rich young ruler. I used to teach high school kids at my old, uh, at my ho old home church, Calvary Chapel Golden Springs, and I loved the high school ministry. And I kind of always had to keep them engaged with, um, with the Bible studies because you kind of get a, a mixed multitude whenever, whenever you have high school kids. And when I would see this rich young ruler, I don't know why it always popped in my head. This guy, he, I would call him, I call him young money. And he, he was rich, he had authority, he, he had an extreme amount of money. And let's get into it. Let's look at verse 18 of chapter 18. It says, Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So now, first of all, we have the first person introduced in our story this morning. That's the rich young ruler. And according to, to Matthew's gospel, because it doesn't say here, but we find out he was young in Matthew's gospel. And the second person that's introduced in this account is Jesus. And Jesus is God in human form. He's the creator of all things. So we have this rich young ruler, meaning the ruler of the universe. And the rich young ruler begins to ask Jesus a question. And he was right to ask Jesus this question. He says, good teacher or good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And I, I, as I'm reading that question, I, I start to think about it. What does anyone do to inherit something? What does anyone do to inherit anything? How do we inherit things? Well, to inherit something, it's usually passed down from the parents to their child, right? When it comes to inheritances. You don't really do anything to inherit something. You simply receive it because it's been given to you. 
So this leads me to my first point this morning. Point number one, simply receive Christ. To inherit something, you would need to be an heir, a child of, the, of a father or mother. Now, what this young ruler is asking is, how do we inherit eternal life? Well, then I began to wonder, well, who, who can give eternal life? God the Father, the Creator, right? So the question that the man is asking, it, it kind of needs to be corrected a little bit. Because the man should be asking instead, Jesus, how do I become a child of God? Because you don't just inherit something, you have to be already a child. And when I wonder now, okay, how does one become a child of God? How do you guys know how to become a child of God? And it reminds me of the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus that took place that night. In John chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. And Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So now Jesus was giving Nicodemus, look, this is how we receive eternity. We have to be born again. Sometimes you've heard it that this phrase lately in society is people say, well, I was born this way, so that's just who I am. And I say, well, look, Jesus said we need to be born again. There needs to be a death to the old self and a rebirth to the new creation. And this rich young ruler, he was thinking that there was some work that you can do to receive eternity. He was thinking, what shall I do? No, it needs to be, who do I need to be? He was thinking that there was some insurance plan that you can buy. And when I say insurance plan, I, I, I see that sometimes in the Christian world that people will use church as kind of like their insurance policy. It's like, well, God, you know, I was going to, to church on Sunday mornings, so therefore, I've, that's my insurance plan for heaven, right? I'm, I'm putting my money in, putting my two cents in, and they're using it as a works-based relationship rather than simply receiving salvation and grace to themselves. This rich young ruler, he was in his question looking for the hidden knowledge because he knew about religion. He knew of spirituality and he's asking Jesus, what shall I do to inherit this eternal life? And he thought there was maybe some hidden knowledge, some mysticism that Jesus knew about. But it's not about any of that, is it? And it's not about works. Because what is it about? It's about John 3.16, isn't it? Back in that same chapter we were reading out of, out of John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, God so loved the world. He was willing to give what was his only son who should receive the inheritance, all the riches of God's glory should have been given to Jesus, which they will be. But instead he said, I'm going to take my son, my only son, and allow him to be persecuted, put on a cross and murdered, so that way I can give my inheritance to a people who don't deserve it. That's because he loved the world so much. And it's not about works. So the rich young ruler has some lessons he has to learn. Now in these next verses, Jesus does not simply give the rich young ruler a simple answer. Instead, he begins to focus on some of the realities surrounding this rich young ruler's life to awaken something in him. Look at verse 19. It says, So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good. But one, that is God. For what reasons are you calling me good? Jesus is asking. Which leads me to my second point this morning. Moral law points to a creator. When I'm thinking of Jesus asking the question about why are you calling me good? Well, we know good to be God's attribute. His goodness. Something that... that is holy. And the opposite of good would be evil. And within that, those two terms right there, we have what we know as morality. Now, what Jesus is pointing out to this rich young ruler is he's saying, look, only God is good. So he's not saying the man is wrong, but he's focusing this young man's mind on something that the young man is perceiving about Jesus. Because the young man sees something in Jesus. He notices something. He says, good teacher, good master. And Jesus is like, hey, well, why, why do you call me good though? It's because he is Jesus. Jesus right here is affirming his divinity. Now it's true. There is no one good but God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, haven't we? And we all have some sort of testimony some people's testimonies are, are darker than others, and I, I try not to get too caught up in that because I know men and women who have had a testimony where they were raised in church and nev- never did drugs or never went out and partied and did anything crazy, but their testimony was they discovered the relationship that they could have with Jesus that wasn't based on works. And that's their testimony. But we all have our story, our testimony, and we've all fallen short. When I think of, uh, of sometimes people, they start getting this self-righteous attitude in life. They, they think that they're good people because they've done good things. If you guys ever uh, want to learn a little bit about evangelism, there's a guy named Ray Comfort. I would encourage you guys to go look him up on YouTube because he, he loves to do street witnessing. And, and he had this really simple way that, that was kind of cool of approaching people and going over the gospel with them. And he would ask them simple questions. He would say, have you ever told a lie? I remember one, one kind of crazy looking guy with some crazy hair. He told him, he was like, have you ever told a lie? And the guy was like, lies? 
lies? Like, he's like, in his mind, he's probably thinking, like, everyone's told a lie, but it's just the way he said it was lies. And then he's, being, he's like, okay, so you've told a lie, right? And he's like, yeah, I've, I've told a lie. And he says, okay, so you're, by admission, you're saying you've lied. He's like, have you ever looked at a woman with lust before? He was like, yeah, I've looked at a woman with lust before. And he says, okay, well, Jesus said that if you even look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever stolen anything? Oh, well, yeah, I've stolen, like, something here or there. Yeah, I've stolen. He's like, okay, so you're a thief. Have you ever said God's name in vain? And he's like, yeah, I've said God's name in vain. And he's like, okay, so by your own admission already, you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterer. So on judgment day, when God, when you stand before the throne of God, do you think, what, where do you think you're going to go? Heaven or hell? And they say, well, I've, I've done a lot of good things though. Like, yeah, I know I, I did that, but I, I also have done a lot of good in my life. So I think I'm going to go to heaven. And he's like, okay, wait, wait, wait. In a courtroom setting, someone has committed a, of, of murder and, and a, of rape and something so terrible and stands before a judge and says, okay, yes, I admit it. I am guilty of committing this murder and these heinous crimes, but I've also done all these good things in my life. So please don't put the judgment on me. Is God going to, is the good judge going to say, you know what, you're right. You have done a lot of charity, so I'm going to let you go free from murder. No, that would be a crooked judge if he did that, wouldn't it be? So a good judge has to judge righteously. And ha- the sin, the guilt has to be punished. So there needs to be judgment. And that is why God sent his only son, Jesus, to take that judgment for the rest of the world, for the entire world, so that when we believe on him, he takes our judgment off of us. And it's at that point where a lot of the people, when they're hearing this guy, Ray Comfort, say that, they're like, wow, they start, their eyes start to open, their mind and spirit starts to kind of see the truth, the reality of the choice before them. In verse 20, Jesus continues to remind this young man. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now he begins to list these five commandments, all related of what is being right towards mankind. Now when I think of the Ten Commandments, I realize that the Ten Commandments were not written so that we can be made perfect. No, the Ten Commandments were written and revealed to us to show us that we are fallen. You see, skeptics, they they look at the Ten Commandments and they often think that Christians believe in them And that they have to, in order to be a a Christian, carry out the Ten Commandments perfectly in order to receive salvation. And that's how skeptics view the Ten Commandments. They want to take Ten Commandments, they've already done it, they've taken the Ten Commandments out of school and they want to take it down from public viewing because they feel like it's, it's bad for the world, bad for society. But in reality, it's a mirror showing us what's wrong in our own hearts. And I want to ask a skeptic when I, when I run into them. I, I, I love to ask skeptics 
of the Bible, skeptics of God, I love to ask them, do you believe in morals? Do you believe in morality? And if so, where do morals come from? Think about it. Where do morals come from if you don't have a God? Is it society that said, okay, we have created morals? It's humanity? Is it a part of humanity? And if humanity has created morals, which part of humanity? Is it a majority rules type set of morality? Is it whatever the majority says, that's what's going to be best for the entire society? Because think about this, if the whole world in that mind frame, if the whole world became Nazis, would it be good and moral to eliminate, exterminate Jews? Because it's majority rules, right? And then I began to ask, is morality, is it fluid? Does it change over time? Or is it absolute? Because it was created by an absolute God. If it's made from man, if morality is made from man, then I say it only exists in our thoughts. But if it's made from God, then it's absolute. If there is a moral law, but you guys have it in your heart. You felt things in your life that your conscience was telling you, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, that was wrong what that person did. Because there's morality written in your heart. If there's a moral law, there has to be a moral law maker. Something that set it in, in, into reality. Now, God who is good created good things. And he, he created us. And because he created us, and because he's a good God, he gave us free will. The ability to choose. Now, God, get this, God does not make things evil. And that's important to understand. God does not make things evil. But what he gives us is the ability to act in goodness or to act in wickedness, to do evil things. And what is evil? Is evil the way that Star Wars puts it, this force that's just like floating in the universe that comes and it attacks people? Is it an essence that comes in? No, that's not what evil is. A biblical definition for what evil is, it's simply a corruption of something that is good. See, here's an illustration for you guys of how sometimes a good thing, we can turn it into evil. God created intimacy between man and his wife. And God calls it good and it's beautiful in marriage. But what do sinners do with that intimacy that he intended for good? Sinners will fornicate. Sinners will commit adultery Engage in pornography. So the good thing that God created, because we have free will, we choose for ourselves to do evil. So God does not make thing, things evil. We make them evil. And God has created the world in, in, in a manner in which he gives us a good free will. Now Jesus, being God, knows that this young man's life, all the details of it. So he's kind of bringing these things out. He's showing this young man, okay, you say I'm a good teacher. 
Where does that come from? And this is why this man is going to respond in verse 21 when he's talking about the Ten Commandments. Verse 21, it says, And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So the rich young ruler right here, he's saying, look, I I know the Ten Commandments. I've done all these things. I've been religious. I've practiced all of this. And there's still something missing in my life. He knew of morality. There There was truth already put in his heart and held there, but there was also uncertainties in his heart. There were questions, and more importantly, there was something missing in his life, so much so that it was drawing him into a deeper question of how do I continue to hold on to what little bit of good that I have here on this earth for eternity. And he's heard of spirituality before. He's heard of morality and of eternity, but he knows nothing about the one who gives these things. He knew of his creator, but he didn't know his creator in a personal way. And why? What was stopping this young man from having that personal relationship with God? What was getting in his way? Well, what do we call things that get in between us and God? Anyone know? What do we call things that get in between us and God? Idols, right? Jesus points to this very next thing in his life. Look at verse 22. It says, so when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Which leads me to point three of my study this morning. It's the title of my study, Jesus is everything you need. Often you've heard me say that. Jesus is everything. I love to say that because Jesus is everything you need. It's true. But we have to allow that truth to penetrate every part of our life. Because there's a lot of times in our life when we're out in the world doing things of this life that we need to put God first in it. My wife and I were hoping and praying to be able to move out of our in-laws to buy a home right now. And there's things that I could get worried about and maybe even if I allowed myself to just be selfish in what I wanted for a house and how I wanted things done, I could get into arguments with my wife, which she would win. (laughs) But in all those things, if I'm not putting Jesus first in my decisions, in the way I'm behaving, in where I'm going to go and where I'm going to live, if I'm not asking Jesus to lead me in those things, man, I'm, I'm then practicing religion then. And it's not, not about relationship. And those are when I allow idols, the things that I want, to get in between me and God. And this is, this is the idol in this young man's life. It was his riches all his wealth. And this is what caused him to lack. It was all of his possessions. And what Jesus is saying, it's, it's not a commandment right here to everyone, okay? He was specifically telling the rich young ruler. So this doesn't mean for 
everyone here today to go sell everything you have and wander the streets and preach the word. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He didn't tell his disciples to sell all they had. He was speaking to this specific young man. In fact, he was telling him, the young man, you're going to have treasure in heaven when you do this. And what I see here is that that same reality of the illustration I gave at the beginning of this study. Jim Elliott said, A man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose, that which cannot be taken from him. When we give up something in this life which is going to fade away, and God replaces it with that thing that's going to be eternal, that's when we're walking with the eternal mindset. Now Jesus, he went to prepare a place for us to be in heaven. And we wonder, well, is heaven going to be boring? Is it just going to be the little cherub fat angels like floating around and we're just going to be singing Kumbaya the whole time for forever? That's not heaven at all. And first of all, if it was between a boring place and being in the flames of hell, I'll take option boring place number one, please. I'd rather that than to be in hell and the flames for eternity, right? But secondly, it's not boring. Because first of all, in heaven, there's no more pain. There's no more suffering. There's no more sickness. There's no weeping. And what, one of the best things I love about heaven is there's no more sin. So we're not going to be constantly in, in condemning ourselves or feeling guilty over our sins. And it also, that's really cool, is God's going to give us a new body. This bag of meat that is slowly falling to the floor every day, God is going to give us a new revived one. And I pray that he gives me like musical instruments on my arms that I could play there in heaven or something crazy, you know, a synthesizer on my leg. And most importantly, well, not most importantly, but also very important, the Bible talks about the rejoicing in heaven. He talks about the peace and joy that will be given to us in eternity. Because the most important thing that's going to be in heaven is Jesus himself, is God himself. Sonny, can you do me a favor and help? There's a man trying to get into the church right now. Would you be able to help that young man? Thank you. All right. While he's helping him get in here, we're going to continue forward. Now, Jesus, the God-man, he's going to be the most spiritual experience, the, the greatest physical experience we're going to have, the greatest emotional experience we're going to have for eternity. And what is he telling this young man? He's saying, follow me. And then in verse 23, it says, but when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. Now look at this young man. He's being offered eternity and he's now walking away. He, he's 
sorry now. Why? Because his flesh is longing for the things of the flesh. This is a, it reminds me of Lot's wife looking back at Sodom when the angels told Lot and his wife to, to get out of the city to flee. And she's looking back at Sodom and Gomorrah as it's being burned. And she's looking with longing eyes and crying over this city. But because she turned back, she turns into a pillar of salt. That's what our flesh longs for. Our flesh longs for the things of the flesh. And Satan loves to tempt our flesh right when we're in the middle of trying to do something spiritual. Right when we're getting ready to, to read our Bible, all of a sudden the phone starts ringing. Our, our mind starts going to the things of the flesh. When we try to pray, when we, when we try to do worship, Satan loves to tempt us with those things. And our sinful nature, it can become addicted to the things of the flesh. Let me tell you something about your flesh. Many times, sin becomes the result of our spiritual need not being fulfilled. Because there's a hole in our heart that God put there that only He can fill. And when that need and our heart isn't being fulfilled, we'll turn to everything that's not God to try to fulfill it, even good things in our life. The good things, uh, referring to, oh, like, okay, I, just, I need to be successful. I need to have all the good grades. I need to have the good finances and the good house and the good family. And once I have all those things, I'll be fulfilled. And then you get all those things and you realize you're still not fulfilled. You ask any millionaire, billionaire, if they have enough money, and they'll tell you they don't. And then what about when we try to then use vices and sinful things to fulfill that hole in our life? Well, if I just have enough sex in my life, then I'll be fulfilled with different people. If I have an, enough drugs in my life to, nu to numb the pain, then I'll be fulfilled. And all those things, they don't fulfill that need that God has in our life. That only God can fill. And I promise you guys this. I don't know exactly what you're going through. But I promise you that the sin that you want to use to fulfill that need will not make it better. It will not fill that empty place that's in your heart. So turn to Jesus because he is everything you need. And he has to be everything you need. He must be in your life. My fourth point this morning is with God, all things are possible. In verse 24, it says, And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now as I'm looking at this, I'm wondering what riches is Jesus talking about here? Because the book of Ephesians, as we went through it with the men, also talked about Christians being rich. But rich in what? In the book of Ephesians, Paul was writing to the Ephesian church, reminding them of the riches that they have in Christ. 
that we have exceedingly great riches in Christ. But that is not what Jesus is talking about right here. So there are, then I see then that there are riches that we have in Christ and there are riches of this world. And the type of wealth that can easily become an idol in a person's life is the wealth that's from this world. Now, I also want us to understand that we don't want to make a sin out of being rich because being rich is not a sin. It's when that riches becomes an idol in your life. Does the Bible say money is the root of all evil? Does it? Doesn't. James said the love of money is the root of all evil. Good job. Ten points in the back. <laughs> because it's an idolatrous love. I think of King Solomon, one of the richest men in the world. And there's chapters and books in the Bible from King Solomon. He wrote part of our Bible. And he was a man who learned to fear the Lord, who was also one of the wealthiest men on this world. But King Solomon is also a perfect example of how his riches became a snare to even him for a part of his life. He began to multiply all the the things that he had of his wealth, and he had a thousand wives, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Just one's enough, right? Just one's enough. But he allowed those riches to become a snare to his life. So God had to get a hold of his heart. So it's not necessary that riches are equal to sin. It's just, look, there's a danger that when someone is rich, they need to really put those things before the Lord. And then in verse 26, because now people are getting concerned now, in verse 26, and those who heard it said, who then can be saved? Because they're saying, well, if the good, successful, wealthy people are doomed, then who can be saved? In verse 27, but he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And you can underline that in your Bible. See, God was making a way in front of their very eyes. And Jesus is showing them, look how sinful the world is. Mankind needs a savior and God is making a way. He's saying perfection and righteousness well, is going to be replaced on man through God, through Jesus. Because it was because Jesus going to the cross and dying for the sins of the world that we then have salvation. So it was because of the sacrifice of Jesus' life that God made things possible for us. Because without Jesus in our lives, we'd only get as far as Abram's bosom. In verse 28, then Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. And in this moment, when Peter is saying this to Jesus, I wonder how Peter felt. Because I wonder, did he feel that his own journey was 
and glorious and should be praised at this moment? Was there pride maybe in Peter's life where he said, look, Jesus, we've left all and followed you. Look how good we're doing. Maybe, maybe he felt that way. I'm not sure. But there's also the truth about Peter's saying, because they did leave all. Remember, Peter, he was a fisherman. That was his livelihood. And he left his nets to go follow after the Messiah, to follow Jesus. That was all he had. And whenever I see Peter's zeal, his love for Jesus, I don't doubt Peter's love for Jesus. I really don't. Sometimes I think Peter gets a bad rap because he puts his foot in his mouth a lot and starts throwing his sword around and cutting people's ears off. But I see Peter telling Jesus, he says, I will die before I ever betray you. And I think he meant it. I see when they're in the garden and the guards are coming to take Jesus away, I see Peter pulling out his sword and he's throwing it down ready to kill in order to keep his Jesus safe. And Jesus has to tell Peter, Peter, put your sword away. He says, those who live by, by the sword will die by the sword. And then I see Peter weeping in torment after he denied even knowing Jesus. And he looks at Jesus' face from across the court and it says he wept like no man ever wept. So I know Peter went through that condemnation. He went through that guilt because he did love Jesus. And I recognize also in, in Peter's life, he didn't have the Holy Spirit yet given him. I see Peter returning to Jesus and fulfilling the call that Jesus gave him to feed his sheep. And then at the end of Peter's life, I see Peter giving his life as a martyr, being crucified upside down on a cross. And when I see all of those things now, when I'm looking at at the man Peter, when I see his whole life, it kind of changes the way that I look at him. I don't just see the guy who was always messing up anymore. I see his whole story, and I see how he finished his race. And I realize that's how God sees your stories. That's how God sees our lives. It's like, yeah, we mess up. Yeah, we're falling and faltering, and sometimes right now we just feel like we're terrible, which we are. But God's not done with us yet. He's creating something in us that we ourselves can't do. And God sees all of it. I have a movie recommendation for you guys, actually. It's called Silence. It's more of a, of a Catholic-based film based on these missionaries in Japan. And, and it's kind of a fabricated story, but it is based on historical priests who went out to go be missionaries in Japan. My wife and I got to see it this past week. And to see just how they suffered and went through persecution and martyrdom, all those things, it was very impactful to see what some people have to go through, that we here are blessed in the United States to be able to meet together, to worship, to teach the Bible. When other people don't have that, they have to hide underground not to get too far off. God sees our whole story. 
And it's not about how you start, it's about how you finish. So my fifth point today is how are you going to finish? In verse 29, it says, So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. See, Jesus is not saying, okay, abandon your family and, and, and follow after me. But what Jesus is saying, put God first in everything you do and everything you, you are a part of. And there's a promised blessing in this life and in the eternity to come. And I love that. You see, when we start to see that a bunch of our horizontal relationships, the relationships that we have here on this earth, are, are really messed up, are getting off, and just there's no peace, I would start to begin to ask the Lord to reveal to you if there's something wrong with the, with the vertical relationship, with your relationship with God. Because when your relationship with God is on point, even with your enemies, you're going to still have the ability to walk in peace. Like David said, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. There's still peace there. If you're walking and there's just anxiety and pressures of this world and everything that's going on in your life, start to ask God, look, God, is there something off in my relationship with you right now that I need to get right? And sometimes it takes a long time to get things right with other people. There's trials, there's situations with, with families and, and children and, and just arguments that have been there from all the years back and all this memory that we have built up in us that when we look back at it, we just get angry and we hate that someone put us through those things or that someone did us wrong or that maybe we're on the other end of that, that we've hurt somebody else and that they can't forgive us. But as you put God first in your life, little by little, you're going to see. He's going to help you in those situations. He's going to bring peace in your heart in those situations. So let's get the vertical right. Because we have one life, and it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. With our study that we saw today, as I'm going over these points, just to remind you guys to go home with this, look, simply receive Christ this morning and, and have that every day. And we could tell people who are lost that their conscience, the moral law, it points to a creator. We could explain it to ourselves and to other people that Jesus is everything that we need because with God, all things are possible. So how are we going to finish our race? Let's pray this morning.